and there's so many different ways we could be going about this uh, with, with the law. And I've chosen to look at this chapter, I think it's really in context here, looking at Israel and what God's really trying to do here. Uh, we know that the picture of getting the law here on Mount Sinai isn't one where he's trying to tell you how to be saved. Uh, the salvation took place when they were brought out of Egypt, when the blood was applied. So we're, we're past that. We're past that. <clears throat> now we're at a place where God is revealing himself to God's people and saying, this is who I am. <clears throat> and if you want to be a kingdom of priests and you want to be uh, someone that can be a light to the Gentiles, I need you to understand the level of morality that you must live by. And, uh, and it's very important we see this. I think <clears throat> it's hard for people to catch what I'm really talking about here tonight because we're so used to hearing about the law only in the, in the, uh, in the context of salvation or not. And, uh, and we all know we can get that out of the way right off the bat. The law will not save you. If you try to go through the law, it will kill you, <laughs> right? Uh, because you don't have the ability to uh, fulfill the law. But Jesus Christ did fulfill the law, and we talked about that last week. And because he fulfilled it, the only way that I can be obedient is if I receive Christ and have him in my life and then allow him to live his life through me. That's the only way that that law can be fleshed out, never through our own efforts, our own flesh, our own abilities. We just can't do it. We'll always fail. And so it has to be something from the inside. It has to be something spiritual. It has to be supernatural. And it revolves around us being conformed to the image of Christ. The more we are conformed to his image, the more we are conformed to the morality of the law as well. <clears throat> but we're living in a day and age, I believe what's happening is because we've kept hitting this topic of the law can't save and it's not for Gentiles and it's not for the church, which I understand what you're saying, but the moral law does not change. So when God gave us a moral law, he doesn't say, oh, now it's not for the Gentiles. <laughs> well, no, not through this, the table of stone, but he does desire to write it on our hearts. And so I think what's happening today within Christianity is they think somehow that the moral standard of the law does not have to be honored. And we know that's not true. Thou shalt not commit adultery. It should never be within the church. And if that's something that's happening, that needs to be dealt with, you know? And so we're living in this <clears throat> mamby-pamby Christianity. <coughs> Excuse me, I got a frog in my throat. And, 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 uh, and basically what we're thinking is because Christ fulfilled the law, somehow that now we don't have to be concerned about a moral living or a high standard of living. And I'm sorry, that's just not true. Now through grace and Christ in us, we're able to live that life. And that's what we're aiming at here. Now, will you fail? Yes, because you're not completely conformed to his image. But one day you will. You'll be completely unified to the very image of Christ when you see him as he is. Until then, you will fail. And you will have sins to deal with and so forth. But that doesn't mean we just wash it all away and wipe it out and say, well, it's not for us. And so I think what we're looking at here in Mount Sinai, what I was getting at last week when talking about contrasting the, the Pentecost. See, the day of Pentecost in the New Testament was God giving us his spirit so that we could do the work of God, become a witness, and not only just a witness, but actually uh, live the life that backs up that witness through the empowering of that spirit. The initial contrast to the Pentecost is this time here at Mount Sinai, where God's saying, okay, this is the same thing. I'm, I'm trying to get you to a standard that you can be used to be a witness to the world, but they couldn't do it because they didn't have the internal engine to do it. They didn't have the grace to do it. Amen? So that's why they ultimately failed. But that's why he said, I make a new covenant with you, and this new covenant, I'm going to put my spirit in your heart, and then I'm going to write my law on your heart. And then, for the thousand-year reign, Israel will be that light to the world. Amen? And so that's why if a person says that Israel's done with 
they're cast to the side, God's not going to use them, <laughs> well, then you're missing a big portion of the Old Testament and the covenants and, and the promises of God. And so that type of doctrine, I wouldn't give you five cents to sit under a preacher like that. Uh, I wouldn't let them pay me to sit under his preaching because he, he can't even properly interpret the scripture when he reads through it. He would have to completely slice it up and you would never get the truth. And so, especially this, what would he say? You know, but look how rich it is when you keep it in its context and you keep it within the dispensation that it's in. Amen. And uh, what a great admonition we have for us and the church today through Israel. And so we're going to look at uh, Exodus. We looked last week at, at the Moses, how there was at least those eight times or, or up to eight times that he climbed up Sinai. It could be seven times. I like the seven number better. It just seems to be complete. Amen. And so there may be a time where one of them is actually, two of them are actually one, one trip. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll battle that one next time. But all we know is this was a great event that God was making, that God was setting up here. He was revealing to the people that this is who I am. I'm a holy God. I'm not someone, I'm not your long haired Jesus hippie freak. I am the God of heaven, I am holy, and I demand holiness. And he, he expressed that there on that mount, and to such an extent that he used it so that they would listen to Moses, because there's no way mankind could have handled God speaking to them directly. And people say today, well, God would speak to me directly. <laughs> if God would speak with you directly, you would cower like a worm on the floor. You should just be glad you've got a book in your hands that you can read it. And that's what God did. He established the authority of the writers of the book. And throughout the scripture, he did that. He did that so that he wouldn't have to... We could, by faith, trust what he said. Amen? Where before you couldn't. If God would have to come down and tell you, where's the faith? Then it's just a matter of, okay, he's going to wipe me out if I don't obey what he says. But now through the word of God... You have to develop that fear of him in your own decision-making process. You have to choose to fear God, believing him by faith that what he says will come to happen. Amen. It will come to pass. All right. And so um, we're going to get into the text today, not like last week, kind of just uh, introduction. Amen. And so where am I? I'm trying to find my point. It's somewhere here. It ran away on me. All right. But we will go to the book of Exodus. Here it is, it's coming, da, 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 da. there it is, all right, <laughs> so we're going to look at the first point here, if you have your worksheets, it's a law relating to Israel's relationship to God, so the commandments are divided in half, not quite half, the first four are in relation to God, the last six are in relation to man, and so that's why the Bible says to love the Lord thy God with all your heart, and the second commandment is like unto it, love thy neighbor as thyself. And so those two commandments, the Bible says, hang all the law and the prophets. It's like two hinges to the door. And those two hinges are holding up all the laws of the Old Testament. So when you love God with all of your heart, you'll obey these four commandments. When you love your neighbor as yourself, you will obey those last six commandments. Amen. And so that's the first thing we need to get across here. So Exodus chapter 20 We'll read verse number 2 to 11 as we get through this first part of the uh, commandments here. It says, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow, thy, bow down thyself to them nor serve them for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord, thy God, in it thou shalt not do any work, thou, thou nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day, wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day 
and hallowed it. So letter A, let's look at this first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. No other gods before me. In Deuteronomy 5 verse 7 it says, Thou shalt have none other gods before me. God is very specific. He is who he is. We cannot make him what we want him to be, like Aaron and Israel did with a golden calf. Amen? See, what they tried to do is they tried to take the God that just met with them or just meeting with them, and they tried to make him fit an image of a calf. And even Aaron said, look, this is the Lord your God. This is the one. And so they took the the God who said, I am the Lord, but then they fashioned an image to make an expression of who he is to the people. And so it's not like they were making up a new God. They were just trying to express the God that was trying to reveal himself to them. And that's where he says, you can't do that. (laughs) You You don't take something... Uh, a graven image from the earth to, to somehow express who God is to mankind. He's an invisible God. Amen? And we'll, we'll look at this a little bit more. <clears throat> Number one, there is only one God. In Isaiah 45, verse 5, it says, I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there's none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. Amen. Pretty straightforward there. There's no room for multi-gods. The Mormon doctrine, I'm sorry, is wrong. There is only one God. There's no other gods. You can't become a god. Nobody has been a god and stopped being one. There is only one. Amen. The first issue with Israel, and with us in general, is a wrong view of God. We have to believe that there is only one God that deserves all of our worship. That's where it begins. Amen? Without this, we're messed up. Without this, we are not going to go forward here as God wants us to. We have to settle that in our hearts. So a lot of people get confused that while you say there's three gods. No, there isn't. There's one God. But that God exists in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. But then you'll have people like Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, the Mormons, and others like that, that'll say, oh, you believe in a three-headed monster. Like somehow this, there's three gods and, and there's only one. Folks, this is the thing. What we don't do is go to God and say, I'm going to tell you what you should be like. We just simply take the verses and how he expressed himself to us and say, yes, I believe that. Amen. And if he said, I am one God... And then he says that there are three in one, then I believe that. <clears throat> and if my finite mind cannot comprehend that, that's not God's fault. That's me, all right? See, the, what's happening is mankind began to say, oh, you, you have this three-headed God, doesn't make sense. Well, if God would make sense and he could fit into your finite mind, then he wouldn't be much of a God. He is far beyond you. The Bible says his thoughts are not your thoughts. His ways are not your ways. He's just way above. If you can define who God is <clears throat> and give me a definite definition of that uh, in one sentence, I'm sorry, you're, you're, you don't got the right God. You know, we've got classes that we, we, we give on God. It's called the Godhead. And we spend pages and pages just trying to define in a, in the, in a little bit who God is by studying his attributes and studying how he handles things and the, his actions and those kind of things. And we, we put together who, what God must be like, but yet we're still just scratching the surface about who he is. So don't try to figure, don't try to tell God that you know who he is. People are so proud today, you know, and they, they try to tell you this is who God is. You don't know that. These scientists, Wow. Richard Dawkins and <clears throat> these atheists, they somehow can boldly just say there is no God. It's like they've been to the edge of the universe and they've searched under every rock and somehow they've come to the conclusion there is no God. Well, that's a pretty bold and proud statement to make because you're making yourself God if you're saying there is no God. Because you're saying you've been there. Taking an, you take a, a telescope and you shoot it as far as you can go, man can't even travel as far as a telescope can go 
and the universe goes how much further beyond your telescope, and yet you're going to stand here and say there is no God? That is just the most blatant, prideful thing that a man can say. And that's why God says, A fool saith in his heart there is no God. You're a fool. Because you're making a definitive statement based on not having all the knowledge. Amen? Now we know why they don't want to believe in a God. They don't want anybody telling them what to do. <laughs> you know, the Bible says they love their darkness rather than light. And that's where every one of these guys it comes down to. They love their sin and darkness. And they don't want anybody telling them that I can't do what I want to do. I do my body, my right. Right? No, God's right. <laughs> Amen. We're wrong. That's all there's to it. And so uh, we will serve that which we love the most. This was Israel's problem. They had a heart that was set on the world rather than God. And that is why this part of the law is summed up by loving God. You see, what you love is what you serve. The thing that you spend your time at, the things that you talk about all the time, the things that you think about, that is your God. Even if you believe there is a God and you're not worshiping him. Your money could be your God. When it comes down to a choice, Things of God, money, what's your choice? Would you sacrifice your money for your God? Well, then you know who your God is. <laughs> He's the one that gets your ultimate obedience. Amen? Based on what that God can do for you. And that's why they fabricated gods. That's why they made statues. That's why they made graven images. Because these images, they would give them what they want. <laughs> we want our crops to be good. We want this, we want that. So they make a God to that. You know, but it's not just about a God being God and us worshiping him because he is God. Amen? And that's the problem with all these false gods. Number two, we should love God with all our heart. In Deuteronomy 6, 5, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. Matthew twenty two thirty six 36, it says, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. Wow, <laughs> how much of our mind does God have? How much of our heart does God have? How much of our might is given to God? You know, and that's a serious question because when it comes down to the end, this commandment here is really going to be the primary thing that God will judge the world on. Right here. Amen. <laughs> and we won't have the excuse that we couldn't. We don't have the excuse that, well, Lord, because we're a sinner, you know, we couldn't love you the way we wanted to. He said, no, I gave you the ability to do it. <laughs> I gave you my grace to love. I gave you my son to give you the example. And then I also gave you his spirit in you to give you the power to do it. So there is no excuse before God that somehow I couldn't have loved you, God, or I can't give my life to you. I couldn't have consecrated myself to you. It's not true. We all can do it if we want. We just don't trust them enough. <laughs> like, and that's what Israel was battling with. Well, if we trust you this much, well, then, uh, then our guard's going to be down and we're not going to have the food or we're going to die or we're not going to make enough money or we're not going to this or that and the other. How can you be enough, God? Well, that's why he says, by my name Jehovah, they have not known me. And the name Jehovah means self-existent, which means that there's no law on earth or in heaven or in the universe that somehow can hinder or restrict God from doing what he wants to do. For you, there is. You meet those restrictions every day. You get up in the morning. It depends on whether you can actually get out of the bed. <laughs> Amen. And then you got to put on some clothes, and if they got holes in them, then you don't want to go to town. Or maybe you got to turn on the vehicle, and all of a sudden it doesn't start. Or maybe there's a storm, and all the... Hail comes down and I can't even make it to the car. You know how many things can stop you from doing what you want to do? You are under a lot of restriction. None of those things restrict God. So he says, by my name, they have not known me. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to tell them, I am self-existent. When you trust me, there is nothing that will hinder you. I will never ask you to do something you cannot do and you cannot complete and do it right. So if I say, 
you can love me with all your heart, that means that I'm going to give you the way for you to love me with all of your heart. Amen? And if you say, well, I don't know if I can do it, well, then you don't know the capital L-R-D. You understand? The self-existent one, and you need to learn that. And that's a journey you're in. And that's okay, because we got to start somewhere. <laughs> you know, the problem is if we've been a Christian 30 years and we still don't know the capital L-R-D. We still don't know Jehovah. We still don't trust him and believe that he's going to, you know, hold us up. Folks, I got a battle with that. I face these things with the building. Oh, Lord. He's just, he's looking at it. Come on. It's like a little on his shoulder, you know, like. There's nothing restricting him, you know. But with us, where we look around us, there's so many things that could stop us. He says, that's why you need me. And if you love me and obey me, I'll make sure I pave the way through for you. Amen? And so, number three, loving God is the first and greatest commandment. We looked at that. Uh, number four, if we love God, we will keep his commandments. This is the thing. If we're not doing right, it's a love problem. If we're continuing on in sinning and, and disobedience because we don't love him. That's what it is. It's a love issue. John 14, 15 if you love me, keep my commandments. John 14, Judas saith unto him, not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? Jesus answered and said unto him, if a man love me, he will keep my words and my father will love him. And we will come unto him and make our abode with him. He that loveth me not, keepeth not my sayings. And the word which ye hear is not mine, but the father's which sent me. So it's very clear. Those that love God, God manifests himself to them. So it's an interesting thing that the more we love, the, the more real God gets to us, you know. Number five, if we continue to obey God, our love will continue to grow for others. This is an interesting concept in the scriptures. In John 15, 9 to 10, it says, As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So you see, loving him will made it motivate us to keep his commandments, but keeping his commandments will keep us abiding in his love. So the moment we say, I don't want to obey, I'm digging my heels in, I've just backed out of the love of God. That's why in Jude it says, keep yourselves in the love of God. <laughs> wow. See, it doesn't mean, you mean God doesn't love me if I disobey? No. He loves you no matter what. But the thing is, you haven't entered into the love. For God so loved the world. He loved the whole world. But how many of them entered in? You understand? <laughs> so God loves you, but at the same time, you have to enter into that love. <laughs> For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, but only those that would trust Jesus Christ as their savior can enter into that love and understand it and have it motivate them and, and fill them and so forth and abide in that love. <laughs> but a lost person hasn't. And that's why they don't understand the love of God, you see. So his love for you never changes, but folks, you've got to realize that you need to enter into the love of God to experience that and to continue to grow in your love for others as well. I like this passage here in 1 Peter 1.22. It says, Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. So how do I learn to love my brethren or, or, or to have this unhypocritical love towards people? By purifying my own soul through obedience to the truth. I have to obey the truth. And the reason why I'm not loving people is I'm not obedient to the Lord. <laughs> Amen? But if I obey, then my love grows. And then it becomes purified. And it becomes unhypocritical. It's one thing to say, hey, I love you, brother. 
It's another thing to sacrifice yourself for that person. And you know, that's why the Bible says, any man hate not his mother, father, sister, brother. They cannot be my disciple. That means you have to be willing to have that person hate you because you love them. Do you understand that? See, if all you're wanting is people to show that they love you, you're not going to love them. <laughs> you have to do what's right for them. That's why children, if you love them, as the Bible says, the Lord chastens those that he loves. <laughs> you think that we love chastening? <laughs> you know? No, and many times children get angry because you chasten them. Right? But God says, I'm doing this because I love you. <laughs> you see? See, that's what true love is. And so unhypocritical love is not just something you talk about on Sundays when you come to church. It's you taking a stand on truth and obeying the truth, no matter what everybody thinks. So your family members and so forth and people that don't agree and, oh, I don't believe that and whatever. You, you just have to continue to do right because you love them. Just recently talked to somebody it was in, the, in the Mennonite world, baptism is that big divider. I don't know in your cultures if it's the same. <laughs> you know, maybe it is. It's always been a divider in Scripture too. But yet, that baptism issue, here I've been sprinkled or I've been poured on, maybe at some point, maybe to get married. In Mennonite world, it's very common. Most of the people that I baptized by immersion, <clears throat> and they'd already been poured on, they got poured on because they wanted to get married. They didn't even know what it meant. And many of them, they weren't even saved, you know. So the first thing is they have to be saved first before baptism. So if you're baptized before you're saved, I'm sorry, you're not baptized yet. Because it's an outward testimony of your inward condition, of your salvation. And, um, and so what happens when you rebaptize them, the parents will, or family members or friends will put pressure on I, I was telling you, my mother got a phone call the morning of by her best friend and says, you're going to go to hell if you do this. They call that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That's the way they interpret scripture, <laughs> you know. Praise the Lord, she, was, she loved them enough to do it anyways. Do you understand what that means? So anybody that comes to me, I says, you know what? Doing right is always the best thing for people in your life. Even if they think it's the worst thing in the world, <laughs> doing right is always right. And I understand you're going to go through a battle, you're going to have a, a conflict with friendship, and they don't want to see their grandkids, or they won't let us visit. I tell you what, if you're going to give in and compromise, I'll tell you what the problem is. You love yourself too much. You love yourself too much. Because you've just stopped loving them. They needed you to do right. <laughs> don't come up with these reasonings and <laughs> doing right is always the right thing. Don't let the devil give you the reasons why. We're look at this world today. Oh, my body, my right. They got all these moral reasons in their mind why doing right is always right. In spite of all the arguments. Amen. That's how you love people the best. That's how you fulfill the law. Amen? Anyways, let it be. Second commandment. Thou shalt not make thee any graven image. Thou shalt not bow thyself unto them, nor serve them. And so, the image we're talking about here, like I said before, it's not talking about you can't have a statue of a bird in your garden or something like that. That's not what it, And if that's what you think, then you're really missing it. <laughs> You're missing a great truth here because the Lord is teaching them, you know. He's just not making arbitrary commands to make this religious type of uh, system that you just don't do these things. And we don't know why, but we just don't do them. <laughs> no, there's a reason why he doesn't want you to bow down to something as God. It has a ramification on your life, not on him. Because whether you bow down to a little pig uh, statue doesn't change who God is, nor what he's going to do. But it will have a great impact on you. And not only that, it'll have an impact on how God can use you. And those things are a problem to him. 
all right? And I want you to understand this. I'm going to give you a couple of pictures first. Um, what's going on here? They're bowing down and praying to a statue, a graven image of a person called Mary. Here's another one. Just in the middle of a town, there's a statue of Mary. We're just going to bow down and pray and worship this statue of Mary. But no, it's not worshiping Mary because it's just a representation. <laughs> well, yeah, there's not a person that ever lived that thought a stone statue was a god. You understand? They knew they made it. They all took their, you know, Aaron and, and they, they made the, the calf out of gold and so forth. Now, they never thought the calf itself was gold, but it was a representation of their God. So I'm sorry, that kind of language does not work for me, you know. And it's interesting when you look in, and folks, I'm not against Catholics here. I love Catholics and I want to win them to Christ, amen. But the doctrine, since 431 AD, they started doing this and they, it's called the veneration of Mary. Like she's God. And they try to, they try to make it sound acceptable by the way they word it. But in all reality, they call her the mother of God. And that's why she deserves our worship. <laughs> it's not true. She doesn't deserve. She doesn't even want it. <laughs> if she'd be down here, she'd be preaching in every church to stop doing that. <laughs> you know, it's not right. You know, she needed a savior. She said she called Jesus her savior when she was alive. So she's not immaculate, <laughs> you know. Um, of course, we got their boss setting the example, right? The Pope worshiping Mary. And folks, no matter how moral they talk, no matter what kind of positions they hold against abortion or uh, gay marriage, whatever it may be, this is still the heart of what they believe. They pray to a statue that represents a sinner like them. They pray to saints <laughs> by the way we're all saints if you're born again Amen. just goes to show that they're in a works based salvation you become a saint through the, the, the blood that washed you clean we're all saints in Christ 1 Corinthians you look at chapter 1 it talked about to the saints that are at Corinth now what was Corinthians about these guys were carnal as, as, any, as could be yet he still called them saints you see um, let's move on here. Number one, the only image of God that you will bow down to is Jesus Christ. See, this is what he's getting at. And I believe very much this is exactly what's in the heart of God when he made that law. Because the language in the scripture is very clear. Uh, it talks about Jesus Christ being the image of God. Uh, first of all, Romans 14.10 says, Why dost thou judge thy brother? Why dost thou set not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So Jesus Christ you will bow to, and he's the only one you should be bowing to. Number two, you become what you bow down to and serve. You become like them. You, you take on the characteristics and the qualities of the thing that you worship the most, <laughs> whatever that may be. Now, it may not be a pig or a cow or something like that, but it could be your money, could be your, 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 your stature in society. <laughs> People are totally consumed by that. Look at the leaders today, power. And they're consumed by that. It doesn't even make sense. Like, don't you want to just enjoy life and go spend time with your family? And, you know, like, oh, no, we want to spend our time making this global empire that's just going to explode. <laughs> like, it's crazy. It's crazy what they're doing. But, but they, they become what they worship. You become what you bow down to and serve. Colossians 1.15, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. That's Jesus Christ. So God is invisible. You can't make any graven image to look like him. Anything you would try to would be an error, and it would lower your idea of who God is. So the only thing I can bow down to that's an image has to be his son. Because he is not lower than God. The Bible says he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. 
but made himself of no reputation. Amen? 2 Corinthians 3.18 But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. And I've got a, a, a message, I could speak for two hours, on this particular topic of, of images, going right back to the beginning in Babylon. <laughs> that's, what, that's what the devil's been trying to do from day number one, is get you to bow down to something other than the image of God, who is Jesus Christ. Because if you bow down to Lord Jesus Christ, you will become like the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> and not only that, I'm going to take you a little bit further. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's not in my notes. Every time I preach that message, I, it, it's, it's so much, I never get to the end of it. <laughs> and so, I'll, get you my, I'll go to the end before I start the beginning here. Listen to this. I'm going to read all the way from verse number 1. It says, Now remember, I just read to you 3.18, but we all with an open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. And, the, and right before that, it says, now, now that the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So the Spirit comes in and gives you liberty, freedom. And it gives you freedom to become and to be conformed to the very image of the Lord Jesus Christ from glory to glory. As He expresses Himself to you in Scripture, you can take that onto yourself and, and actually become like that. And that's why Stephen, when they stoned him to death, he said the same thing Jesus did. Father, forgive them. He took on that glory and it changed him. That was through the working of the Spirit in his heart. So that's because he bowed down to Jesus Christ. He became like Jesus Christ, even to the death, just like Jesus did. And that's why people throughout centuries ago have gone to the stake being burned alive because they were bowing down to jesus christ amen so it's interesting here you go on in verse one of chapter four therefore seeing we have this ministry as we have received mercy we faint not but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty not walking in craftiness or handling the word of god deceitfully but by manifestation of the truth commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So basically what you're doing is you're, you're saying to people, look at my life. I'm manifesting truth to you so that every man's conscience can judge me according to truth. Now that's not Christianity today. Christianity today is, oh, you can't judge. It's only because they're hiding something. And if there is something wrong with you, then you should be okay with it being exposed because you desire so much to be free of dishonesty. <laughs> Notice what it says next. It says, but if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. So this whole process here of me not being conformed to the image of Christ is hiding the gospel to the people in my life. That's why Christians can be Christians and never have an impact on the job. Because they do not allow themselves to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. So you know the gospel, you believe the gospel, but the gospel cannot be seen through you. Because you're not making the decisions you need to make, you're not standing where you need to stand, and you're surely not behaving the way Jesus Christ would behave. Amen? That's why I say, like, <clears throat> folks, it's more than just conforming to a religious thing here. It's got to be an inner change that takes place. It's got to be a heart change and conform to the image of Jesus Christ. It goes on to say here in verse 4, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. So this is the whole thing. The image is supposed to be shining to them. But it's hid. <laughs> and so the God of this world is involved with that. The God of this world is keeping the, 
the eyes of the, the unbelievers blind. <laughs> and many times it's because we're not shining. Now let's go a little further. It gives us some more. It says, uh, five, for we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. So there's the two things that we do outside this room. <laughs> we preach Jesus, and we serve. You don't preach standards. You don't even preach King James Bible, as much as I love it. You don't preach uh, whatever your little hobby horse is. We preach Christ. I'm not saying they won't mention it. I'm not saying you don't get into a conversation. But what I'm saying is a person that knows the only answer for this person is Christ is not going to sit there and try to win an argument over evolution when they need to aim at the cross. And so you will constantly take their argument and you'll move it to Jesus because I preach Christ around here. That's your message outside the walls. In the walls, King James Bible, holiness standards, all these different things, Bible study, all these things because this is where you're discipled and trained to be used of God outside the walls. Amen? It's important to understand that. Otherwise, you're just going to take everything you hear here and try to convince your lost co-worker of what I'm trying to teach you tonight. And it's not going to help them. But it does help you. See, like, Israel was only ready for the law three months after they left Egypt. Right? <laughs> the people you're talking about and talking to, they're still in Egypt. <laughs> Why are you talking about Mount Sinai? <laughs> now, I understand you can use the law to win them to Christ. Because they understand that. But you know what I'm saying? You can't talk it to them like somehow you're going to change their life. Or they need to be a certain way, <laughs> you know. They need Christ. They need the Passover lamb. They need the blood upon the doorpost of their heart. That's the kind of faith they need. Amen? And then the other stuff comes. Then you'll learn who Jehovah God is. Then you'll understand him by his name and so forth. But all they need to know off the bat is... We preach Christ. And a servant. They need to see that flow out of you, that servant heart. It, it, it's so different than the world, it's not even funny. And when you become a servant to men, <laughs> you know, they say, what is this? Not climbing the ladder and stepping on people, you're on your way up. Hurting people and tearing people down way on the job or whatever. You'll know, because that's not the image of Christ. Amen. You've got to learn to take a few licks. <laughs> You've got to learn to, to survey situations. Sometimes God puts you in those unfair situations. He does it on purpose. Unfair. Well, maybe there's a reason for it. <laughs> maybe he wants you to demonstrate the humility of Christ in your unfair situation so that you can shine to these people. Amen? It's very important. Now let's go a little further. This is the key, key verse right here. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, have shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Wow. That's it right there. So God says, Thou shalt not bow down any graven image. Why did he say that? Because you'll become what you worship. Number two, people will see what you worship. And if you're not, they're going to see Christ in you. <laughs> you're of no value to God. Amen? So when he says, thou shalt not bow down, it's not just talking about, oh, let's be careful, there's no little statues on the yard. <laughs> he doesn't care about statues. He cares about your heart. Amen? In Athens, Paul went right onto Mars Hill. Bunch of statues. He didn't start railing on graven images. <laughs> but he did start to teach them about the Christ, the one they didn't know. But we preach Christ. Amen? Letter C, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Deuteronomy 5.11 says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Number one, the Lord's name is referring to his authority, 
and character, which is holy. Name is an appellation. It's a, a mark or a memorial of individuality. By implication, honor, authority, and character. So the name is not just talking about a name. It's not just saying, Jeff. <laughs> oh, don't you say my name. That's not that important. But what my name represents. A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. And loving favor than silver and gold. Now he's not talking about a good name either Jeff or John or Bill or, you know, but he's talking about a, uh, the demonstration or the mark of your individuality, the mark of your, uh, of your authority and character. Amen? That's the name that you carry. So he says, don't take my name in vain without profit and attach it to things that don't profit me. Amen? Psalm 111 says in verse 9, He sent redemption unto his people. He hath commanded his covenant forever. Holy and reverend is his name. Holy and reverend. So all I know is anything that I attach the name of God to has to be holy and reverend. Matthew 6, 9. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. How many names do you hallow? God's. That's why I say Christian rock. He will not hold you guiltless. The word rock comes from the sex act. That's where rock and roll came from. Christian rock. God's just going, oh yeah, because the music's got a good beat. I like it. No. He says, I am holy and reverend. <laughs> you do not attach my name to that filth. That's one of the reasons we're against it. One of them. One of the many. Amen. People don't like that. I had a service. I preached against rock music, Christian rock music. I had people not come back the next week. I haven't seen them since. You know why? Because they're attaching the name of God to that music. And I would gladly lose people over that. I don't want to lose them. I'm hoping they see the truth. But some of them don't. Number two, the things of the Lord must never be associated with anything that is irreverent or not worthy of his holy character. Vain is desolating. It's evil morally. It's idolatry. It's uselessness. False lies. Vanity. Amen. That's taking the name of the Lord of God in vain. So it's not just talking about using his name as a curse word. <laughs> in fact, I think that's almost the least thing that's referring to, though it could apply. I think the greatest thing is on how we're associating the things that are cursed alongside God. <laughs> things that are sourced in Satan and somehow God's, we're bringing God in on it. <laughs> you know, I'm sorry, that is taking the Lord, Lord's name in vain. Psalm 74.10, O God, how long shall the adversary reproach? Shall the enemy blaspheme thy name forever? The, en the enemy blasphemes the name of God. His purpose down here is to take the name of God and blaspheme it. <laughs> how better to do that than make it look like God's involved in all this filth? James 2.7, do not they blaspheme that worthy name by the which ye are called? Revelation 13, 6. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. That's the Antichrist. His whole thing's going to be about blaspheming the name of God. <laughs> you know, you look at Daniel, look at when he, when Nebuchadnezzar made that statue. And he says, whenever you hear that music, you bow down. He wanted them to become like him. And he blasphemed the name of God. And he had three men that says, no, sir, not doing that. They withheld the name of God. They held high with reverence the name of God. And the Antichrist is going to use music. And the one world church is going to use music to bring everybody together and you look at it today, it's happening all over the world. 
all these churches. And it's, it's, it's going out. First, it was kind of the, the aberration movements on the outskirts of Christianity. And then it's moving in. Now the new evangelicals have this thing since the 90s. It's been infiltrating the churches with rock music. And, and you know what? Now it's going into the Baptists. Independent Baptists. You never would have thought. But you see it all over the place. This charismatic movement, they, they called it the third wave, the first, second, and third wave. I did a study on that once when I was teaching on cults and how it is. It's coming in waves. <laughs> and each wave goes a little deeper into Christianity, you see. I think we're in the fourth wave. We're now even fundamental people. We used to preach the word of God and are fundamental in their doctrine. And that's because there's been all kinds of people that have crossed over and given us that example in that direction. Billy Graham's one of those. I like Billy Graham. I like listening to his messages. <laughs> I could sit down and just listen to him. I love it. But do you know something? He has crossed the people over. He's crossed them over. When he has his revivals and so forth, and he had that, and people would come forward. He'd have Catholics there. He'd have whatever different religion. And he'd send those people to where, from where they came from to the people that they're used to. That's not what you do. <laughs> you bring them to the light. Amen. So he compromised. That's why even now they've even got their own Bible version. I think it's a living way is the one that the Graham organization created see I'm not against Billy Graham anything that he's done good I'm glad for it <laughs> but all I know is you can easily cross people over so if we were to start playing rock music here to get people's attention and so forth we need bigger crowds if we would do that we'd be crossing them over but we're not crossover church <laughs> people come here when we're not crossing over they don't like it sometimes I've had people send me emails. Well, what's wrong with this? What's wrong with that? <laughs> you see, taking the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Um, I'll give you this last one. We'll be done. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Keep the Sabbath day to sanctify it as the Lord thy God hath commanded thee. Six days thou shalt do thy labor and all thy work. The word Sabbath comes from a root word, sabbat, which simply means to cease, to stop. Okay? So that's what Sabbath means, to cease. So what's it talking about? It's an important definition. Since many today are trying to impose a Sabbath on the church, like somehow we're supposed to worship only on the Sabbath, and the Sabbath that they're referring to is a Saturday. So the Jewish Sabbath is always on the Saturday, the seventh day of the week. That's when God rested from all his works. And I think there's a principle. There's obviously a principle of rest. I remember we worked up north, and uh, I wasn't even saved at this time. And we were way up there. We were there for like a month or two at a time. And, uh, and it was just remote. And so we thought, well, what are you going to do? Let's just work seven days a week. So we started working seven days a week, and we started losing our brains. See, people need rest. And so he decided after about a month of that and us becoming loony, he said, okay, this is not working. So what we decided, okay, let's just take Sunday off. And we didn't have nothing to do. Like, they didn't have satellite TV. We didn't have any of those things. They didn't have cell phones back then. And so we're sitting back there. They had one big satellite dish in the whole reserve, and it was pointed at CBC Canada. That was our fun, <laughs> you know. But that was still better and better for us than just simply working seven days a week. So I think there's a principle there that, but I think what you can't do is make it a religion. It's a principle, you understand. The Sabbath was a time they were supposed to cease, and so they were supposed to cease from work. So number one, the Sabbath day was a sign given for the children of Israel to keep. 
Now, this is one thing that's never been reiterated to the church one time. In fact, the God says, don't. Amen. And wherefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations for a perpetual covenant. So it's talking about Israel, the people, the children of Israel. Israel is Jacob, the church in any way whatsoever. And in fact, that's why the Bible says that the tribulation is Jacob's trouble. <laughs> Not Abraham's trouble, <laughs> you know. So the tribulation isn't for the church. It's for Israel, the children of Israel, the children of... So it's a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth and on the seventh and was refreshed. And so the principle is there that you need rest, but that's not the message. <laughs> the message is... That salvation is only afforded to those that don't work for it. The Sabbath was a die, and that's why immediately what happened is someone gathered up sticks on this because that is the result of anybody that is trying to work for salvation. Work for your rest. Amen? Only in Christ is rest. He is our rest. Okay? Is doing you a very disservice. And is, is a heretic. And anybody that's trying to push on you Old Testament laws as though you have to obey it or you are sinning as far as the uh, ceremonial and civil law, you have to have these diet or you're sinning, that's heresy. Because I have New Testament scripture that teaches me otherwise. It says I can eat whatever I want as long as I do it with thanksgiving. For is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. So I have scriptural New Testament principle that eliminates the tie to those laws. Amen. Same with the Sabbath day. Uh, we have that. I'll get there. Uh, did I give you number two? No work was done to be done on Sabbath punishable by death. So that's where I just started talking about here. Number three, the New Testament believer has no obligation to keep the Sabbath day. It was a shadow of Christ. And that's why Colossians 2.16 says, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of any holy day or as a new moons or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Amen? So there, I mean, you can't get any clearer than that right there. Okay? So no Sabbath day. <laughs> now, Notice how it said Sabbath days. So it's not just talking about a Sabbath Saturday. You know that Jesus Christ died on a Wednesday, and at 6 o'clock that evening, the next day began on the Jewish calendar, and that was called a high Sabbath day, and that was a Thursday. So if you're going to keep a Sabbath day, you can't just keep one. You had to keep all the Sabbath days. If you want to be like Israel, you can't just pick and choose, oh, I'll, I'll worship God. On he never gave you the Sabbath day to worship God. He gave you the Sabbath day not to work in as a picture of Christ being our rest. It was never a time where you're supposed to have church. And that's why in some of these old timers, I get confused with them sometimes because they're good men, but they talk about Sundays being our Sabbath. Sorry, it's not. I don't associate the Sabbath at all with the church. That's why we call it the Lord's Day. So preacher, does that mean that we can work on the Lord's Day? I'm saying if you had to, you could. But I'm telling you, you're living by a different set of rules now. You're living by liberty, not by law. So this is what I tell people. Would you be able to worship God and come to church and be faithful to Him and be what God wants you to be if you had to work at 12 o'clock? Or would you be able to go to work that afternoon and get off at 6 o'clock or 5 o'clock and then come to church in the evening and have your mind focused on the Lord Jesus Christ on his day? Well, what's better? To him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not to him, it is sin. You want to work, all you do is exposing where your heart's at. But I'm not going to tell you not to work. Do what you want to do. But I'm just saying the church is meant for people that are taking Jesus Christ seriously. Do you understand? You're not going to find a law in the Bible that tells you not to work on a Sunday. But you know what you will find? 
You'll find Christians that won't work on a Sunday because they love the Lord Jesus Christ and they want to prepare their heart and mind for, for being ready for the preaching of the word of God so that they're ready to take on the battles of the week. Now you show me in the scripture. I've gone through this, man. I told you. At the beginning, you say, Lord, show me a law where I can say, thou shalt go to church on Sunday. If it was there, I would use it. <laughs> it's not there. See, because he doesn't want you to be here because of law. He wants you to be here because of liberty. And if you can't get out of your law-based thinking, then you haven't even started your Christian life. And then you take principles like Moses not leaving one hoof behind. Well, I have to. I'm, you'd, be, you'd be surprised what you have to do. You want to. I have to, preacher. Somebody says, well, I don't think I can get off. Have you asked? Well, no, I don't want to get a mad. Well, Pharaoh got mad. <laughs> Do you understand that? Why are you letting the world dictate your Christianity? That's my question. I teach our young people, from young on, not to let that happen. I think you can grow up and not have to forfeit your time with God's people. Well, you don't understand. I understand everything. I've been doing this a long time. And I've seen how God has honored it. Amen. Amen. Folks, all I know is this. That's your journey. Not mine. I've settled mine a long time ago. I gave up everything. My future, my uh, whatever it is that my future in construction would have brought me just so I could be faithful to the Lord all the time. So don't tell me I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what it's like to give up a career. <laughs> I know what it's like, and I know many preachers that know exactly what it's like. And it's not because we're some ordained angels from heaven. We're just like you. We're ditch diggers that got right with God and said, God, I'm going to serve you with my, all my heart. Amen. Just like you. Amen. No higher plane, <laughs> amen, just like you. You just got to get to that point and just say, you know what, God? I'm not going to let anybody stand in the way ever again. And just make the right choices. Make the right choices, amen? You do that, God will honor it. I guarantee you that. Well, show me where I have to. Just go home. You still don't get it. By liberty, love one another. Liberty. I had somebody one time, I remember knocking doors in Morris, Manitoba, about 45 minutes from my hometown. We were just running out of doors because all these small towns, it doesn't take long, you get them done. So we were just kind of branching out all over the place and went to this one city. It was about 45 minutes away, started knocking on all the doors. And this one lady answered and she says, oh, I'm the Baptist too. Oh, that's great. She says, well... I'm glad our church doesn't make us do what you're doing. We looked at her kind of puzzled, and he says, nobody's making us do this. See, there's a person who didn't understand liberty. Liberty. I get to, <laughs> you know. Nobody's making me. I'm not going to force anybody to come out soul winning. Why, why, do you, why do you think I haven't been whipping anybody about it? I don't want somebody out there who doesn't want to be there. I want someone out there that has a heart for God. I want that to leak over into that house that they knock on that door and they open the door and that'll just kind of flood into there. That's what I want from God's soul winners. I want to have to drag you anywhere. <laughs> Amen. If you're a kid, your parents ought to drag you. <laughs> but us adults, nobody should be dragging us anymore. He's proved himself. Come on, man. Let's get over it. Amen. Let's give them everything. So number four, the early Gentile church was never commanded to keep the Sabbath. Acts 15 verse 19, remember when the Judaizers came in and they tried to make the Christians obey all the laws of Moses? And they said, if you don't do this, you're gonna, not going to be saved. You've got to trust Christ and obey the laws of Moses to go to heaven. And so they had a big meeting. Big meeting. <laughs> Acts 15 gives us the details of that and it came, it came down to this. Wherefore, my sentence is that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, 
but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols, from fornication, and from things strangled, and from blood. That's, the, that's all the Jews required. They didn't even require it. They suggested. Doesn't sound like the Mosaic Law, does it? It's not. And that day they figured that out. They said, you know, we can't do this to them. We can't put on the Gentiles what we ourselves have not kept. So they said, let's just remind them of these things. The pollution of idols. Let's remind them of sexual purity. Let's remind them of <laughs> things strangled. I'm still getting in to get my head around that. <laughs> and from blood. The life of the flesh is in the blood. You're not supposed to drink the blood. When you go hunting, don't take the cup as initiation. You're not supposed to do that. It's against scripture. People do that. Shoot a deer, hey, you gotta be initiated, drink the blood. No, sir. Sometimes you go to the mission field and, and they'll, that's a delicacy to them. They'll have a dog and they'll cook up that dog and first drain the blood out of it and they'll, they'll eat the dog and they'll say, here's the best part and they'll give you a cup of blood to drink. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I wouldn't do it. But it's not just because it's gross. It's because the life of the flesh is in the blood. That's why we don't kill babies. That's why we don't call... Uh, just a baby that's just been conceived. If there's blood, there's life. Amen? So we don't kill babies. One week, two days, whatever. You just don't kill them. <laughs> you don't kill them. 